Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is an example of the immigrant story coming to America to pursue the American dream. Born in Karachi, Pakistan, he moved with his family as a youth and has lived in Dallas, Texas, San Francisco, and San Diego on his way to becoming an entrepreneur, executive, and early stage investor. His ventures have been backed by the likes of Greylock, Floodgate, Google Ventures, and Tim Ferriss. We'll hear more about his entrepreneurial journey and his latest very unexpected foray into founding a mental fitness platform for startup founders called Pioneer Mind. You'll soon appreciate how he is a pioneering mind. I'm pleased to welcome Naveed Lalani. Naveed, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. Very excited to be here today. I am thrilled. I know you're a very busy man, and I really appreciate you making time. Uh, What you've most recently been doing is so compelling. I'd like, though, first, uh, if you take some time to give listeners a peek into the journey that's gotten you to this point. And often for immigrants, the focus is about fitting into a new land. I imagine lots of ups, downs, twists, and turns for you along the way to becoming who you are. So um, look forward to hearing your journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess the first thing I'll mention is I always see myself as constantly evolving um, and uh, constantly learning. And I think that's my kind of key strength. Uh, and and just like not being hard on myself for for my failure. So I'll give you the 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 kind of the nickel tour and then we can dig into whatever parts are most interesting to the audience here. I grew up in Karachi in Pakistan. I moved to the US when I was uh, 10. Uh, Karachi, growing up in Karachi was a uh, quite an experience. You know, I have uh, a lot of memories uh, from those days, playing cricket with friends, going to school, uh, really enjoying like art class, and not really enjoying the rest of school. <laughs> um, you know, I was a. Uh, I think even as a young child, I was a bit of a kind of a. I wouldn't say maybe outcast is a strong word, but I definitely didn't feel like um, part of the cool kids club. Um, and so that was a part of my dichotomy, like growing up. Uh, and, you know, in Karachi, uh, we we lived in a poorer town, part of town initially when I was younger. But then my dad, through entrepreneurship and et cetera, was able to, you know, kind of we came to to be, I would say, upper middle class in, in Karachi. And so we moved to an area called Garden. And that was a better area in Karachi than Aisha Manzil, which is where I was born or that area I was born in. Um, but even then, you know, we would wake up to the, sh- you know, sounds of gunfire in the morning. That was pretty normal. It was pretty normal to lose power, um, you know. And so, yeah, I kind of grew up in that environment. Uh, but overall, we actually were uh, very well off in Karachi. And, and, and I attribute that to my dad and my mom's uh, hard work and, uh, hustle and, and, and entrepreneurship. Uh, my dad had a, his own accounting firm uh, in uh, Karachi. And uh, yeah, so that was the, that was my first 10 years. And then after that, 
we had to move to the US because in 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 that part of the world uh, that I grew up in when you achieve a certain level of you know success or name brand etc you you're expected to play ball with the government uh you're expected to bribe uh government officials uh all these different things and you know my dad and my mom wouldn't have any of that um and so so yeah they put my dad in jail uh this is when i was you know i was 10 i remember like every day he was in jail we would you know as much as possible during the day we would like um you know stand in our living room with me and my family my extended family and we would all just pray for him you know like we would um like in our in our culture if you pray with like standing on one leg um that's like it gives you extra blessings i guess so i actually remember vividly that we would do that you know for the uh the period of time that he was in he was in uh jail um uh unlawfully right like he didn't do anything wrong um and then yeah we were able to the the the, the government took uh all of our seized all of our assets all of our took all of our money and then we had to uh, the only option we had is to take the little bit of money we could borrow from the people around us um and move to the US and uh my dad was able to make bail and 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 so we kind of moved um and that's the first 10 years of my journey you know kind of seeing uh, my dad go from really not much to someone of significance um and and you know most of what i remember in the first 10 years is the significance part like i don't remember the tough days because i was so i was so young i was like maybe 3 or 4 um and we started having upward mobility when i was probably around that age so uh most of my memories from like the tougher days are aren't I don't really remember too much but I do remember the good times and I remember the really bad times once we moved here with uh with nothing you know my my uncle took us in um and uh and uh yeah that's the first 10 years so let me let me pause there and see if there's anything from that period that you want me to reflect on further um or if I should continue with the story well I'm a bit blown away um <clears throat> thank you for sharing that first and the idea of living through that and did you have siblings yeah i have an older brother and then i have two younger sisters wow so the four of you um how long was your dad put in jail you know i actually don't remember um i think it was probably it felt like forever but i think it was probably a few weeks maybe uh, and he hasn't you know he's passed away um uh a few years ago and he hasn't really i don't think we ever really talked about his experience there but um i'm i'm pretty sure there was like pretty you know a, a a pretty bad experience for him yeah yeah that is just uh, you know the the visual of huddling in a home with your closest friends and families standing on one leg praying you know it's like in the movies the movies right you're you're like wow and as a young person I am wondering did you ask your mom how is it that they just took our stuff or was that sort of common knowledge that that you just knew that that was the way the world worked I'm just wondering as a young person processing that cuz it you'd have to think the young person thinks this is quite wrong Yeah you know kids these days like I have a 6 year old um you know kids these days are like much more advanced and smarter than I think 
than a few decades ago. <laughs> and so I don't really think I fully understood what was going on. Um, I was kind of going with the motions. Like I knew, okay, my dad is in trouble. We have to pray for him. Something bad is happening here. Um, and uh, it's not my dad's fault, uh, but it is what it is. Uh, so it's almost like I was almost, um, my memories are one of like kind of just being in the moment and experiencing those moments and, you know, just having family around us to support us. Uh, and then starting the um, immigration process to uh, to the U.S. Um, and you know we were we were fortunate like we had already had family in the U.S. that was ready to take us in and support us and things like that. So we were able to make that leap. But yeah, I don't, I don't really remember like the feeling of like like I, I don't think I understood the gravity of the situation mm -hmm. uh, just because I was so young. You know, I was like nine, yeah. nine and a half. Um, but yeah, looking back at it, you know, obviously I reflect on it a lot and, uh, looking back at it, you know, I have more clarity on what happened and I've obviously talked to my parents about or my mom specifically about this and, you know, I've kind of filled in some of the details of the holes that I wouldn't have known if, you know, at that age. Yeah. Did your mom, was she just strong, silent about it? How did you observe a lot of stress for your mom during this? Um, so my mom is a very, very strong person. Um, and uh, so is my dad. Um, so, you know, actually, like, we, my mom had to um, immigrate. The way that the immigration process worked is my mom had to go first. Oh. And then we had a, um, uh, my youngest sister at that time was like, I think uh, uh, she was, um, she was like, Oh my God. I'm actually blanking Molly <laughs> where my youngest sister, this is such a traumatic kind of a thing that happened. Right. You kind yeah. of black out, you kind of black out certain things. Um, yeah. I think my youngest sister was actually born in Karachi. So she was like a few months old when this was going on. Um, and then my youngest sister and my mom, and I believe my other sister first moved to Karachi and then my grandmother came over uh, from the U.S. to help my dad, me, my brother. Um, and then we moved after. So our family was actually separated for, I believe, several months. I stopped going to school. Um, uh, you know, like the bus would come by in the mornings. This is after my dad was released while, while we were still kind of navigating the immigration process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember like the bus would come by and I, we just wouldn't go into the bus. And I was like, okay. I guess it's another day off from school, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, it was really, it was a very, you know, weird. Uh, yeah. It was a very odd few, uh, few months kind of seeing my dad going to jail and then him coming back and then, you know, um, having my grandmother there from the U S come and then my mom not being there and all this happening in a pretty, pretty rapid, you know, fashion. And then moving here, like, I mean that's a whole other story. Yeah, I, I can I can share with that share that. Yeah, next, let's uh, go into the moving over because this is you know this is I'm so grateful to just get an understanding of what it really was like. Yeah, so um, again, we were fortunate that my mom's youngest brother um, he was here in um, the U.S. already, and also his her older brother and sister who were also very very instrumental for us as we were moving here. Um, I just remember when I moved here with. Uh, my my brother, my dad actually came later, um, a little bit later, just again, because of the process. Um, 
so yeah, for for a while, and then my mom had already been living in the in Dallas with my uncle. So my mom and my sisters were here. My brother and I came. My grandmother was also with us. My uh, my dad's mom was also with us. So uh, I believe she came earlier with my mom. I can't I can't quite remember. Uh, but anyways, yeah, we were all here. My dad wasn't here. Uh, my dad came a few months later. Um, but uh, yeah, we were basically. My uncle had like a, I think it was a one bedroom apartment in uh, Arbors. Uh, by Euless, Texas, which is like a suburb of DFW. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we were, it was right by our, what we call it a Jamaat Khana, but basically our, you know, our, our version of a mosque, like the, in my, within my religion, but it's called a Jamaat Khana. So it was right by our, the apartment was right by the Jamaat Khana. And uh, yeah, it was him, his wife, I think his one newborn. And then my mom, my sister, my, newborn sister my brother and me uh and then uh my uh maternal my maternal grandmother and then my paternal grandmother right all in the same kind of one bedroom apartment um for a little while uh, and the apartments were like pretty pretty decent actually it wasn't wasn't too bad um and then we moved to so my, my, once my dad came over we moved temporarily i believe we actually moved to another unit in that apartment. Um, and then we moved to a place called Manchester. In, in, oh, sorry. Yeah, in Euless. Yeah, that was Manchester. Um, and uh, that's where we lived for a while. So we were in like a, uh, basically a one bedroom apartment and we would have like, you know, kind of cots and beds um, kind of lined up in a room. And um, we would just like, yeah, sleep in one room, uh, all like, seven of us, basically my dad, my four siblings, including me and my mom. Um, so that's, yeah, four, five, six, seven, yeah, seven people. Um, and uh, yeah, that was my, you know, kind of the initial stages of uh, moving, moving to the U.S. And you got, you got to keep in mind, like, you know, we, we had, I mean, we had like, we had two drivers in Pakistan. Okay. In Karachi, you know, um, like we were pretty, like we were, we probably were upper class in Karachi. Um, and so to go from that to like basically having nothing uh, was, you know, uh, I'm sure that affected me in a lot of significant ways. Uh, and then also saw my dad. One of the things that really stands out to me is my dad was, so he had an accounting business in uh, Karachi. And that's how, you know, uh, we kind of climbed up the the ladder, right, with his, with his own business, and he had a bunch of employees and, you know, et cetera. And so he basically, when we moved here, his plan was, hey, let me restudy to be an accountant here in the U.S. Um, and so while he was studying to be an accountant, you know, we start to pay the bills, right, obviously. Mm -hmm. So my mom would work at a, um, at a, at a, what do you call it, like cleaners, dry cleaners. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my dad worked as a delivery driver for, I believe it was, I want to say it was KFC. Um, so this is around, this is around like when I was, you know, when we moved here, like when I was around 10, 10 and a half, basically in um, late 1996, I'm 38 now. Um, so this was in, or in 37, uh, but this was in late 996 in the 1997 kind of time frame, And I was around 10, 10 and a half, 11. So, so yeah. So one thing I really remember, one thing I remember is, my so my dad was doing was doing deliver he was delivering you know chicken with KFC and then he was basically had finished his studies with accounting 
And then he was starting as, you know, he was starting to like get customers, right? And he would, you know, you know how it is with small businesses, you go after the community, you know, right? So he would get customers from our religious, from our Ismaili Muslim community. And, you know, he would see that, you know, he would see people in, you know, our Jamaat Kana and you would try to pitch them on, you know, the fact that, hey, you should bring me on as your, you know, as, a, as an accountant for your convenience store. And so the part I remember is that he had to make sure that he set up his delivery routes for KFC in a way where he wouldn't accidentally deliver chicken to one of his accounting customers, right? Because they couldn't know that he was delivering, you know, the fast food delivery driver, you know, by uh, by evening, right? Um, because then that would he would lose his he would lose some credibility, you know, because he had to showcase that yeah he's a legitimate accountant that he can, you know, do their work and and he's professional and educated things like that. Um, but you know he just didn't have enough clients to he still had to hold that second job. Um, yeah, so I, I have a lot of stories like that actually about my dad and mom and the hard work they did, you know. Um, but eventually we, you know, climbed up the ladder again. Uh, and it was again through entrepreneurship, right? My dad created a very successful accounting firm, first in Dallas, then in Austin. You know, I think now the fir- we, we sold the firm after my dad passed away. But I think the firm employs like, you know, 15, 20 people. And now it's part of a regional firm that has locations in other cities across Texas as well. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's a little bit of the story of, of moving here. I have, I have plenty. Yeah. I have a lot of stories around like my own experience with entrepreneurship, moving here, my dad's experience, the, some of the experiences with my brother, like there's, there's a lot more we can, we can dig into, but that's a. Well, we're going to go there. Quick thing. This, um, the religious community, could you spell this word? Jamad Kana? I want to, I want to actually know that word. Yeah. J A M A T Jamad, And then Kana K H A N A. Okay. So I'm a, Shia Imami Ismaili Muslim. So I'm part of the Shia uh, Muslim sect of yep. Islam. And within that, we have a, you know, a, a, a sect called the Ismaili Muslims. Um, and so our mosque, we call it a Jamaat Kana, which is, Jamaat means a congregation and Kana means a place of gathering. So it's a place where the congregation gathers. I got it. That's great. Will you share a bit about the role of religion um, for you both uh, as you were growing up in Pakistan and in the States and, you know, how you've um, found that. Cause I, I could imagine not as many people appreciate, um, you know, your, your religious background. Yeah. So I think religion is, uh, I'm sure if my mom listens to this, she's going to like slap me on the face, you know, but um, uh, love, lovingly, right. Like, Hey, Nabi, keep some thoughts to yourself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i think yeah religion to me is very interesting so i definitely resonate with my community very strongly from a community perspective like i you know i was a i've been a leader in my community at a national level uh just I, like for example i led all the entrepreneurship initiatives for our religious community um you know for almost a decade uh in the us so i i feel very connected from the sense of like service, pluralism, community, um, spirituality, things like that. Um, in terms of like my core beliefs, um, I, I would say like I, f- I feel more culturally uh, Muslim than um, religiously. Like I have, 
you know, I'm just a very skeptical, like I'm, I'm a very curious, skeptical person in general. So I literally question everything, right? Like this is mm-hmm. my mind is constantly processing everything around me. Like just, I just doesn't stop. Um, and, um, and so I have a hard time, very hard time believing in there's like, I, I have a very hard time believing there's only one answer to anything in the, in the world. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I do, you know, constantly struggle with that part of my religious belief. Uh, culturally, I feel very, very aligned and very much part of the Ismaili community, even though I grew up kind of as an outlier and we can we can speak about that. But like I found my place in the community and it's been, you know, amazing for me. Like, I mean, with my first startup, the Ismaili community, like, you know, a guy named Rahim Fadal actually is the one that connected me and my co-founder to a lot of the context we ended up making in, in Silicon Valley, you know, after we moved our first startup. Uh, or while we were in the process of raising funding for my first startup. So, and then the volunteer work I've done has been instrumental for my life. Like it just brings me a lot of joy and I've been able to help over a thousand aspiring and current startup founders in their own journeys. You know, obviously did that as a, you know, part of a team effort. I just didn't do all that work alone, but I had a team of about 50 volunteers overall. Actually, I think it may be a lot more. Um, so I, I do feel very connected to my religion from a cultural perspective from a core belief perspective, you know, it's, 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 it's a constant um, challenge for me. I want, I want to believe this is, I'm very skeptical by nature. Yeah. Share with us just how you would articulate the Muslim culture. Well, I think within, within like the Smiley community, we're almost like the Jewish community. It's small, tight knit group. We have a lot of external internal organizations. We have this thing called the, Akan Development Network, which is the largest, I believe, non-denominational um, uh, development organization in the world. Um, and so I've grown up around like the concepts of pluralism, accepting people for their beliefs, right? Embracing, not just accepting, but embracing everybody's, uh, other people's beliefs. I've grown up around the concept of like philanthropy uh, within the Ismaili community because our religious, we have a living religious leader and, you know, he has, they, like our community does a lot of philanthropic work. You know, I grew up, um, like when I grew up as an Ismaili, um, we had a lot it, it, all over uh, kind of the kind of the developing world, I guess. Um, the Al Khan uh, Development Network has like hospitals and schools and all sorts of things. And so uh, initially in my I remember my first few years growing up, I think the Ismaili community was still kind of like a black sheep. But then I think as the resources we provided to the community in a non-denominational way became more and more clear and appreciated. Now the Ismaili community is really looked up to within the larger Muslim community as, you know, people that are accepting of others that are uh, philanthropic, that are, you know, really think community first. Um, and yeah, I think we, we pull a lot of inspiration from the from the Jewish community. That's the best way I would I would describe describe that. Sorry, I don't know if I answered your question. But. No, for sure. That's just great to, to hear it from you. And those are great virtues. Um, and I'm glad that it's been such a great, uh, support to you, but also a way for you to engage, you know, and feel that connection very clear. So, you know, talk to us about going to school and, you know, this learning English. I know this sounds crazy. Was that something you knew in uh, Karachi? I just, I'm just curious about the assimilation coming to, um, you know, the great state of Texas and taking root. Yeah. So I was in an English school. As I mentioned, we were pretty well off in, in Karachi. So I was in an English, private English school called St. Michael's. 
So I already knew, I already knew some English that got, you know, we had grown up around it uh, along with Urdu, um, which is a language of, of Pakistan. And so when I came here though, obviously like I had to enroll into ESL, English as a second language. Um, and, you know, kind of, there's a lot of like differences in how, you know, people in Pakistan would speak English. And I was still learning it because I was still quite young versus like in the U.S., right? So you start, you start to go to ESL, learn all the grammar, syntax, all the, you know, vocabulary, like learn to communicate confidently and things like that. Um, and um, one story I actually remember. So one thing that I've noticed about myself is that, you know, there's a saying that you're only as good as the five people closest to you, right? Um, you know, I, I I experienced that like very directly as a child where there was a, another there was another student, uh, his name I believe was Zohib, really sharp guy. And like, I didn't actually know how smart he was, but I, for some reason I was obsessed with competing with him. And he was a friend of mine. So it wasn't like, it was friendly <laughs> competition, but I was just obsessed. I was like, all right, whatever grade he gets, I have to get the same grade or higher. Um, and he was a constant challenge for me because like I could never quite hit his mark, but I would get very close, you know? And so this is all going, this is like in, let's say, uh, I think I was in ESL up until um, early high school. So I think I, I joined in sixth grade. Uh, I joined the, the education system here in sixth grade in middle school. I was in ESL and I think I finished ESL maybe in ninth grade. Um, and so I remember I was sitting in my ESL class and, um, you know, somebody from the principal's office office came and they called me aside and they said, hey, look on, you know, whatever, two weeks, three weeks from now, um, you need to show up to the school, make sure you are dressed properly and show up to the gym, you know, and that's all they said. And I was like scared, shit, let's have it. I'm like, oh my God, like, are they gonna, you know, did I do something wrong? Like, are they gonna, you know, um, am I gonna get deported? Like, what? <laughs> you know, am I, am I failing out of school? Like, what is going on? Like, I was freaked out, you know? And they said, oh, by the way, make sure that you also tell your family to show up. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is, like, worse now. You know, now my family's going to know. And, like, uh, like I had, no, I, I had no idea what's going on. I just, anyway, so uh, I showed up. And then there was, like, t- t- 10 uh, chairs lined up in the middle of the gymnasium. And they told me to sit on chair number five. And I did. And then the other kids sat down. And I was like, oh, shit, like, okay, um, it's not just me that's in trouble. But Zoeb is in trouble, too, because he's sitting right next to me. And uh, so maybe did he do something wrong that they think I did, right? Like, what's, you know, like, I, I don't understand what's going on. And then they, the principal got up to the podium and, you know, as you can probably tell where this is going, like, this was a ceremony for the students that were the top 10 students in the in the ninth, in ninth grade, you know? Um, and I was number five in the entire class of, uh, <laughs> like, 630 students uh, or something along those lines. And I, had, I didn't even understand the concept of, like, that there's, like, a grading, that there's, like, a system where you can have, you know, a, a rank right in your school. like I didn't even understand all, all I was literally doing was just trying to compete with Zohib right because it was fun like I I wasn't doing it for some academic reason or like it was just like it, it just kept me entertained you know like it kept me going to school and it kept me doing my homework and whatever else right like it was it was like fun for me you know um and but I, yeah I ended up being you know number um five in my class and I was still in ESL at that time uh so so that's anyways, that's my that's my ESL story for you Wow. So did you feel singled out? I mean, did you, did people mix and mingle fine? Was there any sense of bias? You know, kids can be mean, so. Yeah, you know, 
Um, no, I got called a camel and, you know, fob, right? Fresh off the boat and those kind of things. It wasn't too severe. So I actually avoided a lot of it because, um, uh, you know, when, so my dad, you know, he started his business again in the U.S. and then uh, things started to take off for us financially and with the business. And then, so we moved for, I was in junior high at Ulysses Junior High School for only a year. And that school was in a pretty rough part of town. Uh, we, we lovingly call Ulysses Useless Texas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can say that because I, I grew up there. You know, other people, other people can't say that, you know. But um, but no, I moved to Grapevine, Colleyville area, which is a really nice part of, of DFW. And so, you know, the school I was in, there wasn't a lot of, um, uh, you know, Ismailis or Muslims. Uh, it was mainly kind of the more the you know uh, white and Asian crowd. Uh, but I but I but I there was like very little like bullying or because you know I, I guess like I don't know maybe the kids were more trained or or or, or coming from you know. Uh, less rough households and you know so they weren't taking out their anger on each other um so i kind of avoid that if i had gone to trinity high school which was the high school i would have gone into after the junior high it would have been a much different story i've I've heard you know pretty bad horror stories from uh, other smileys that went to trinity um uh, at, that, at that time in you know kind of the early 2000s um but i did self-isolate significantly i felt like a complete outlier and a complete outsider and that was because of my brother's mental illness. He, you know, he um, went through, um, I just want to be thoughtful uh, in case, you know, he listens to this podcast. But yeah, I mean, I think he knows like he's he's gone through very significant challenges. And I think, you know, moving here um, at the age, it was a formative age for him. And it, 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 it triggered, you know, pretty significant um mental health issues uh and 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 you know you can imagine the you know um impact of that on my family like basically all the worst things you can imagine uh happened uh from that um and so so yeah so because of that and because you know my brain was just always like just evaluating the world like i was like thinking about okay why does this happen why does that happen why like i was i was like you know i'm like you know you kind of get like lost in your thoughts or daydream i would i constantly would daydream right like that's all i would either in class i would either doodle or daydream i would in junior high i would like kind of half pay attention and still get like i mean not to like two pound horn but like I would, you know i would get over 100 and everything right um and um and and yeah i felt like a outlier like i i found my community when i was at that age especially when i moved to uh college heritage high school and in mirc i don't know if you're familiar um but internet relay chat um and so um yeah so i kind of found my community online and etc but yeah i definitely felt like very much an outsider i you know we didn't have enough money for me to enroll in scouts so it could it would either be my sister enrolling in girl scouts or me enrolling in boy scouts and all of the cool people were in scouts you know mm. in my religious community and I, I you know we didn't have enough money to do that right so i wasn't in scouts but i felt like an outsider because of that and then again either my other siblings could get braces or I could get braces right and and so it was the other you know uh, siblings that got it right so like I, I kind of probably had that little bit of a middle child thing mm-hmm. um uh, but yeah I can dig into any of those things I, I I just I do want to be respectful of my brother's privacy um but um but yeah I'm happy to dig into dig into whatever you found interesting there well I I think that sense of um there's a scarcity right it's uh not an abundant story and and I'm wondering how that has 
created your own relationship with money? Uh, I actually am a, I, I have a feeling of abundance. Okay. And the reason is because I was, so another part of my life story is that I was an entrepreneur since like age, I mean, since I moved to the US basically, right? So my first entrepreneurial venture was when I was, I believe it was when I was in um, maybe early junior high or in middle school, but the yo-yos were really popular at the time. Um, And so I would have my mom take me to the dollar store and I believe it was actually, yeah, I think it was actually in, in, in elementary school in like six, maybe sixth grade. So I would have her take me to the uh, dollar store and we would buy like these shitty yo-yos for like three yo-yos for a dollar kind of thing, you know? <laughs> uh, and then I would go to school and I would sell them for like five, 10 bucks, basically, you know, l- lunch money, right. From the, from the rich kids, you know? And, um, and then, you know, the yo-yos were like pretty shitty quality. So they would break, so they would buy more. Um, and uh, yeah, I actually made like, pretty good amount of money from that. And I would just give it all to my mom, like mom, you know, I didn't, I didn't like, I wasn't make, I wasn't trying to make money to like have an allowance or like to spend it, you know, uh, like I didn't want to like, I didn't have any desire to like buy stuff, um, you know, cause I kind of grew up being provided what I need to be provided, you know, like grew up pretty wealthy, right? So I hadn't like quite connected that. Okay. Hey, if I'm bringing $20 home from, you know, the two euros that I sold today, it's actually pretty significant, you know, for my mom and my dad, because that's like an, two hours of work, you know, for them or three hours of work, right. That day. Um, so I, I didn't really connect those those dots. So um, anyways, yeah, that was my first entrepreneurial foray. And then um, I also sold Pokemon cards. So I took some of the money from the yo-yo business that I had. And then I bought this like, uh, uh, they sell like these packs where you don't know what's in the pack. But I went to a local comic store and uh, this was when I was in Ulysses. I actually remember walking over there with a friend of mine, I think. And I bought a pack and my first pack, I think it was like five or six cards in that pack that you know, you open them up and you get it and you see what the cards are. And the f- I think I, I got it like a holographic Charizard. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Pokemon, but that's like a big deal, you know? Um, and so I had no intention of actually playing Pokemon. Like I actually, again, you know, like to me, it was just like more, um, it wasn't like I wanted to play Pokemon or I wanted to enjoy the yo-yo thing. It was more of an enterprise for me, right? So I traded that Charizard for like, I think 10 other holographic cards, Um uh, with the with the comic book owner uh, or comic um, um, comic store owner, and then I took those, and then I traded some of those for other cards, and I built like a whole book of Pokemon cards, and then I would go to my my uh, church, my Jamaat kind of sorry, and I would you know basically sell it in the lobby to the to the other kids, and again they were you know <laughs> they were using their their they were using the dua money right dua money means like the money that they put in prayers you know. Like they would use that to like buy the cards for me <laughs> um, and instead of doing their prayers, you know, like pretty, pretty terrible. Right. But uh, terrible. it got to a point, it got to a point where like they made an announcement in my Jamaat kind that, okay, whoever is doing this needs to stop. Like you cannot sell Pokemon cards in the lobby, you know? And so then I took my business in outside of the prayer hall, you know, outside of the social hall. Uh, but, you know, eventually anyway, so that, that was, uh, that was, uh, you know, another business and, then actually, like in ninth ninth grade, I believe, was when I started doing freelance design work. I just taught myself Photoshop um, and uh, just started doing design work. First, like an online forum where I would like design signatures for people, uh, like little banners uh, for their thread postings. Then started getting like more local work. And so, yeah, I, I mean, so I guess to answer your question, sorry, very long answer, but like 
I, I have a mindset of abundance, actually, not a mindset of scarcity. And I think because I saw from early on that I can create that for myself. Like I didn't need permission, you know, from anybody, right? Um, uh, to be able to make you know money. I mean, I paid for my entire college myself purely through my entrepreneurial ventures, you know? Um, and, and I saved a bunch of money too after that, you know, through my entrepreneurial ventures. Um, and so, yeah, I, I have a mindset of abundance uh, uh, due to that, I think. So that is so fascinating because I think of that as just a hardwiring in your brain and you're like to the notion of just really relishing in the enterprising part of it, not for the value of the dollar, but that's the game that it is, right? Because you, when you in entrepreneurial ventures, you know, you're selling and buying. Um, and, and is that something that, I mean, your parents were both very entrepreneurial. Do you feel like there's a the genetic part of it or was there a learned part of it? How do you feel about that? I I personally believe it was both genetic and circumstances, right? Um, and so I think genetic is that I saw my dad and mom grow up around entrepreneurs. Like I saw that how, you know, primarily in the US, my dad, I mean, sorry, in Pakistan, my dad went from like, he basically built himself from, he grew up, he was, he was you know, an eight-year-old in a village in India working at a cigarette factory. Okay. He, he went, he got, he was, he had nothing, like he had not a dime, you know, to his name. Right. And, you know, unfortunately I think my grandfather or my, my dad's dad, I think also suffered from, you know, mental health challenges. And so he was basically not, might as well not have been there. You know, he was more of a burden on the family than anything. So my dad at a very young age had to support the entire family, had to get his two, you know, sisters married, had to educate them, had to educate himself. Right. And so I grew up around that story and then I saw him, you know, uplift us through entrepreneurship uh, in Pakistan and then do it again, right? Not just one time, but twice, you know, starting from zero, uh, we went, you know, uh, to pretty affluent in, in you know, or like mid, upper middle class, I would say, in the U.S. So I, I saw how entrepreneurship works firsthand and how it's like possible. Um, and so I think I think that was the upbringing of it. And then I think the fact that I was in this difficult situation, you know, in um, when I moved here, and I probably wanted to feel some agency or some control over my belongings, right? And that's maybe is part of what drove me to like do these kind of entrepreneurial ventures because like, and it gave me like a creative outlet and it gave me an outlet to like have some sense of community and like have my place in the community. Um, and so I think it was nature and and nurture both that that caused it. But yeah, I would say like my early entrepreneurship experiences um, definitely you know, we're a significant part of why I do what I do today. You know, I just, I, I love, I, I believe entrepreneurship is the most powerful force in the world. Um, and I just, I just feel grateful that, you know, I'm able to be a part of that. Yeah. So awesome. I love it. Often folks talk about risk and I see a lot of folks um, that really holds them back the risk factor what does that what does that word even mean to you? How do you think about that? So there's a there, that's a great question. So there's a uh, Peter Thiel quote. I don't want to misquote him, but it, I think it goes something like, like he basically talks about like what's more risky, right? Like, is it more risky to have a job uh, where you're relying on somebody else who can you know let you go at any time, or is it better to control your own destiny? Like, what's more risky, right? Like, is it more risky to rely on others? For like a stable job, quote unquote, or is it more risky that you bet on yourself and you control that destiny, right? So I I actually think that 
at the core, entrepreneurship is a lot, lot less risky than having a corporate job or working as an executive at a startup or working, you know, at any, like if you're an entrepreneur, you have your own thing. I actually perceive that as less risky and more of the logical choice. Um, and then, you know, obviously there are things that I do in my business that are, that you would call risky, right? Like making investment is something that I'm not sure about yet or, or these kind of things. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I love risk. Like I have, like I have zero, um, I have zero fear of risk, like zero. It, it doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. Um, and I, and I think, and I'll kind of lean a little bit more into my own mental health story, you know, so I'm working on a, a mental health platform for founders and they will expand to other high achievers, you know, once we have some penetration amongst founders, but you know, my, my own mental health journey, I've gone through a lot of like, uh, up, ups and downs through my own diagnosis. Um, and, and, you know, the, the downs I've experienced, um, are, are so, were so bad that, uh, and this is mainly, you know, something that triggered in my mid, mid twenties. Um, and so, uh, you know, after I exited my first startup, but the, the lows have been, the lows were so bad that like, uh, anything I do that might be perceived as risky, like starting a company, like I, I will not fail worse than I've already personally, you know, failed. Right. Like nothing can happen with pioneer mind, for example, that's going to make me feel worse than I've already felt because of the lows I've experienced with my, with my condition. Um, so that actually makes me even less risk averse. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to go, for, I'm just going to swing for it. Right. Like what's the worst that's going to happen. I'm going to want to kill myself. Well, check, you know, whatever, yeah. right? Like it's not a big deal. Um, so, so that's kind of the low part and the risk part. And then on the, on the, on the high end, right? Like, um, you know, because of my experiences, um, I, I've experienced like elevated levels of creativity and, and, and et cetera. And so I'm able to tap into that, uh, without kind of the downsides of, of my, of my condition. And like, um, and it's incredible, you know, like, so not only am I not risk averse, I can actually take very creative risks, right? Like with this pledge, for example, you know, that we, that we started, um, uh, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah, risk, risk doesn't bother me at all. doesn't bother me at all. I love it. Let's dive into, just talk about, you know, startups and this gets to pie in your mind because this, this, there's, we could talk forever and I want to make sure that listeners have a chance to appreciate some of the ventures you have and of course what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll I'll give you like the the nickel tour of my entrepreneurship experience. You know, post uh, post college, if you want, and I'll also tie in pioneer mind to that. So yeah, I'm a repeat entrepreneur. Uh, as you can guess, you know, uh, I uh, went into the startup world right after dropping out of grad school. Uh, started my first company with a bunch of people, a bunch of co-founders that uh, I had a consulting firm with in uh, in college. We had a political and nonprofit consulting firm, and so we created a product out of that. You know, raise money from uh, Greylog, Google Ventures, Tim Ferriss, you know, Eric Ries from the Lean Startup, like a bunch of very prominent, Ron Conway, Reed Hoffman, a bunch of very prominent investors. Learned a lot through that experience. I exited uh, that business uh, primarily due to co-founder conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, just, but it was a great experience overall. Like I just learned a ton, made a ton of relationships. Uh, I started doing some consulting work. I went back and forth between that and creating other ideas and, you know, working at companies, uh, experienced several additional exits. So I was 
part of Hack Reactor, which got acquired by Galvanize, which got acquired by Stripe, which is a public company. I was part of Trilogy, which got acquired by 2U for uh, $750 million. That was, an, that was an amazing experience to kind of be on the inside there. And then, you know, I was working at a company called Career Karma. And I was their first hire after Series A. And then I helped them raise a Series B. And I got a, I got a cold email from a kind of a headhunter um, that said that, hey, there's an institution that is working on an idea that they think you could be a fit for, for founder CEO based on your past experience. And based on your experience at Career Karma, running, you know, running revenue and partnerships for a marketplace startup, are you interested in a conversation? And initially, I kind of ignored the email. I thought it was spam. Uh, but then they kept following up and I and eventually talked to them. And then that institution ended up being SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, before the the whole collapse, right, like SVB, and, and even now, like, it's a very respected organization. Like they, you know, the biggest bank for startups, right? 30,000, I think over 30,000, I think over like half of all venture-backed startups bank with SVB, you know, 70% of investors bank with, bank with SVB, et cetera. And so when I heard that it was SVB that had this idea, I took it very seriously, but I still didn't know what the idea was. So in the initial email that I got from the executive kind of headhunter, um, you know, they had a link to the idea. It wasn't in the email itself. And I had never actually clicked that link. So in the very first call with the headhunter, like they just dug into my background. I, again, I still didn't know what the idea was. And I was, I just thought it was very odd. You know, that was like very disrespectful that like they were just digging into my background and they wouldn't even tell me what I'm interviewing for. But of course it was my fault because I never actually had clicked the link. I was moving too fast. Um, and then so when I got on the second call and that was SVB, you know, the first thing that was mentioned to me, say the, and this is from Boris uh, Pluskowski, was like a great mentor to me now. Uh, he's head of new ventures for SVB. And he mentioned to me, hey, maybe the ideas in Founder Mental Health. And I, and I stopped them right there. And I told I told Boris and a, a, a couple of his team members that were on the call, I believe Michelle. Um, uh, and, and I said, hey, look, like I shared with them my personal experience with Founder Mental Health. And I, and I said, you know, either you're going to lean in or you're going to run away because it's, you know, I've gone through pretty significant mental health challenges. And uh, they totally leaned in, they totally leaned in. And, and, and I interviewed for the role from January of last year to June uh, of last year. So January 2022 to, to June 2022. And, and, and the work that I was being asked to do in this role is very similar to what I was already doing. Like I'd already gotten, I'd, I'd been a founder, I'd gone through therapy kind of, you know, gone through coaching, gone through mental fitness, mental health services. I'd helped other entrepreneurs. I, I'd worked with thousands of entrepreneurs, over a thousand entrepreneurs through the work in my religious community. Through the, I was a mentor for the Teal Fellowship for several years. Um, you know, I did work with uh, other organizations as well. So I'd mentored a lot of founders. I've seen a lot of founders up close and how they struggle with mental health. In fact, the data shows that 72% of entrepreneurs struggle with, uh, with the mental health uh, challenge or a history of mental health issues. It's very, very common amongst entrepreneurs. Um and so I had helped a lot of my founder friends and mentees and even mentors, you know, seek proper support. And so I'd always thought of like, maybe this could be a thing I could just do as a consultant. But like when SVB came to me and said, hey, there's an opportunity here to build a whole platform. And, you know, here's our competitive research. Here's the IP we've built. Do you want to run with this right after? Obviously, I interviewed with them. And, and, and it was like, um, it, it's the thing that makes me believe that, okay, there must be a higher power. Right. Cause like there's mm -hmm. no, I, I never talked about my mental health journey on LinkedIn or anywhere else. Right. Like there was no mental health background, no healthcare background I ever had before Pioneer Mind. You know, the reason they reached out to me is because they saw that I was a former entrepreneur and they saw that I was running revenue at a hot marketplace startup and they thought this was going to be a marketplace startup, you know, like connecting people with 
therapists and connecting founders or therapists and coaches or whatever else. And it's actually not a marketplace startup. We actually curate the connections for you based on our matching algorithm. But yeah, that, that, that was, you know, um, that, that was how Pioneer Mind came about and they gave me pre-seed funding. And a lot of these kind of deals uh, end up in like the CEO owning like five or 7% of the company. This is not the case here. Like I actually have full ownership of the company. Uh, they just issued me a safe note for their investment. And, you know, I, I have much more than the majority of the company, basically. Uh, so it, it basically is the same as if I had started this company. Um, and I, 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 you know, I posted on LinkedIn that I uh, found my ikigai, you know, like yeah. this is something that I can, um, that I'm passionate about, that I'm knowledgeable about, uh, that I have experience in doing, that I can make money from, right? Like it, it me- meets that Venn diagram that I think is so hard for people to find. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how Pioneer Mind came about. We just launched our alpha in April, um, learning a lot from our customers. We're actually introducing a thing called mental performance coaching into the startup world, uh, which is a combination of therapy and coaching. Uh, so it's very unique. It's used in professional sports and elite military. Um, and we have the top mental performance coach in the NBA working with us uh, on our on our uh, founding team, Alex Arbach. Have um, other amazing people that are former founders that are on the founding team as well. Um, we're building this together, and yeah, it's been an amazing experience. I mean, I, I really feel so fortunate, right? There's there's no way this thing happens at Pioneer Mind without there being a god. I think there has to be some higher power um, that that kind of made this happen, you know. So that's so it, it it did like building Pioneer Mind kind of reinforces my kind of the religious side of my beliefs, you know, not just the spiritual or the cultural side. It's spectacular for folks who want to find out more. So I know you're starting with the founders and it could be more, but just um, give us a website uh, where they can go to learn more. Sure. Yeah. So it's pioneermind.com. Um, just how it sounds. And then, uh, yeah, you can apply for early access there. Um, you know, we're building a platform that combines human intervention with automated intervention. So it tracks your sleep data, your activity, your HRV, uh, and it provides that to your to your your coach or your therapist. Um, and it, you know, we uh, are able to detect when you're not sleeping well or when you have a certain mood state, and we can preventatively advise you on how to take care of that, either through human intervention by talking to your therapist or coach, or by automated, you know, watching a video that we might have created on the topic or interacting with our kind of GPT enabled chatbot. So we're building a lot of interesting technology around our platform, along with, you know, human intervention, which I think is core. Uh, also check out founderpledge.com. Uh, it's something that I launched uh, with Brad Baum, uh, who's the co-creator with me of the pledge. Uh, launched that during the SVB crisis. I saw a founder tweet that, uh, sorry, I saw somebody that tweeted that they had to stop their founder friend from committing suicide because they couldn't, they weren't sure they could make payroll on Monday. And this is before the FDIC said that they would take over all deposits. So this is when found entrepreneurs thought that they could only, they would only get you know quarter million back and then they couldn't get all of it back for a while. And so they, a lot of founders, including myself, were like worried about how do I make payroll, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, I saw that tweet and that really catalyzed me and Brad to say, hey, you know, we've had this idea for the pledge, let's launch it. Um, and uh, the pledge basically aims to destigmatize founder mental health and it aims to treat founder mental health as a business expense. When investors invest in a company, they... At, at the early stage, especially like they invest in the, they always say, Hey, I'm investing in the team or the founder, not the idea because they know the idea can change. Right. So, mm-hmm. well, if you're investing in the founder or the, or the team, what's the most important asset an individual has is their mind. So one of the premises of the pledge is that 
boundary mental health should be treated as business expense, just like accounting, legal, et cetera. It doesn't need to be some special carver on the term sheet. It should just be you know, just like any other business expense. Founder should, the founder should be able to decide how to reasonably use it for, you know, therapy or coaching or group support or an app or, or whatever, you know? And so we launched this pledge. It completely took off. It's been covered by Fortune, TechCrunch, and other publications. And it's it's become the largest movement around fundamental health ever created. Um, and it's been signed now by over 100 venture capital firms and accelerators, um, including Y Combinator. It covers 22,000 portfolio companies whose founders can now seek mental health and mental wellness and mental uh, well-being services as a business expense. And we're doing a report off of that. We're doing a conference. So also check out founderpledge.com. You know, please sign the pledge if you're a startup founder or a startup leader or an investor, um, either individually or as, as, or as part of your firm. And uh, yeah, those are my those are my two plugs. I do talk a lot about, I, I'm building in public with Pioneer Mind. So feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. Look, Just look me up, Naveed Alani. Um, and, and also on Twitter, Naveed underscore L. Uh, but yeah, those are some of my my quick links for you. I love it. We will have you back because there's much more to unpack. And so I just want to close and I'm just, you know, I have the biggest smile about you. And I do believe there is a higher power, but share with us what it was like for you uh, to take us through your journey today. Uh, cathartic. You know, I have a very hard time accepting my own accomplishments. And so it's one of the things I've been actively working on. I kind of tend to like do things and just move on. Like I don't think about them too much. Um, so I think the fact that, you know, having this moment to like kind of reflect, um, I think is a gift. And the way that I kind of square the the whole um, of like not feeling like I'm gloating or showing off is like, I, I think about, okay, hey, if I share my story openly and with conviction and confidence, it's going to help other entrepreneurs who might be going through a hard time or who might be have gone through similar journeys or you know, I kind of on their path, right? Um, and so it's it's more of me coming into my responsibility as a founder. So yeah, so I, I, I that's kind of how I, you know, feel good about <laughs> talking so much about myself uh, in this podcast. Uh, but it's very cathartic, you know. It's like it it feels feels good to share, and I think it's very important that you know we uh, we share. And 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 to your point earlier, you know, everybody has a very everybody has a unique journey and. Who knows, like maybe maybe one of your listeners walks away with something that they can use or with some inspiration or, or et cetera. And I think that's, it's worth it, you know, even if that, that happens. Even if just one person is impacted, I think it's worth it. For sure. And you've impacted for sure more than just one. And I want mm-hmm. to thank you. I'm very proud of you because I know it is a bit of a stretch. You're not someone to pound the chest, which is not at all what you're doing, but I know it's a little bit of an edge, right? Because you'd rather serve others and kind of move on and get it over with. And I do appreciate you growing, if you will, right in front of us, because I can see that. And it's um, it's a really wonderful thing. The fact that uh, you're really espousing how founder mental health should be treated like a business expense, helping normalize it, helping us find the words to talk about it, which I know uh, can be tricky because it's so personal and um, it really has far reaching impacts. And we have all, I think just everyone I know, know someone who's touched by this and we want to be supportive. So thank you for putting out really a great guiding light um, with your pledge and with Pioneer Mind. I'm, I'm just grateful for all you shared, Naveed. Uh, so I want to thank you for being part of the solution. You're helping all of us to be safe, seen, and heard in our very true and best selves. And uh, you take good care. Thank you so much, Molly. I appreciate, appreciate your time today.
Oh, there is a higher uh, power, folks. Uh, have the faith. Uh, I have a quote thought for the week from Buckminster Fuller. You uncover what is when you get rid of what isn't. And finally, my appreciation to all those who make this show possible, the diligent crew at Voice America and the amazing Eric Patton, who is behind the scenes supporting every episode and is the driving force for the Stay It Skillfully website and all our social media. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Naveed's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.